And I shoot my shot, it's the Hawaii it's going in. Cross niggas like Bubba Chuck, I never gave a fuck. Hook shot a hole like Kareem, but I never lead a fuck. I hit that Janobi with my left hand all like, woo! Bitch, you weren't with me shooting in the gym. James Harden with the range of me, nigga, way back. Michael Jordan, 1985, bitch, I traveled with a cocaine circus. And you could live through anything if magic made it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know, now you do. What up, my fellow NBA lovers? This is your guy, Marcellus Ease. And my, oh my, the NBA landscape is very interesting. We're going to get to it on this one. First, I'm going to start off with the NBA Finals. And boy, that was interesting because post-pandemic, the league has found new ways to get into the bag. Now, I'm not sure if you guys had noticed on the jerseys, the NBA Finals logo used to be on the front, probably within the last like 20 to 30 years. Every time you see the highlights, you see guys with the Finals patch on the jersey. You know, of course, they're in the Finals. It's going to be a legendary moment. It's a legendary game. But this season, I'm noticing the NBA Finals logo is on the back of the jersey. And they opted to stick with the sponsor logos in the front of the jersey, even though it was the NBA Finals. I find that very interesting. But best believe... The money that was paid to have that logo just there for that particular series, the price tag must have been high. But post-pandemic, best believe when desperate and hard times come about, it breeds innovation and the league has found new ways of getting to the bag. Now, some of you may have noticed while watching the finals that there were actually no logos on the court, not even the NBA finals logo. And depending on what region or country you live in, you saw different ads and it kept switching up from quarter to quarter. This is a very innovative way to get the bag, especially kind of almost directly advertising to people in a particular market. Kind of similar to the way Facebook advertises to people based off of their interests. Now the NBA is actually using the technology to more efficiently target audiences while at the same time, very effectively getting the most money they can because now they can run multiple ads on one showing. So they could actually squeeze out more dollars from running ads this way. It's a win-win for the NBA and the advertisers because now the NBA opened up the real estate for more advertisers to come in while at the same time, the advertisers get to directly target their audience based off of what region that they do business in. Once again, post-pandemic, hard times equals innovation. The NBA found another way of opening up some more real estate for some more ads to come in and it's during these fourth quarter instant replays when the audience is the most engaged because these are the crucial plays where the referees are reviewing plays that are really going to affect the game and pay attention to what commercials are ran. I know in my region, a lot of State Farm commercials are ran around this time and usually they only have time for one commercial. So once again, this is a new real estate slot for advertisers. Hey, the audience is really engaged in the fourth quarter. When the referees go to these replays, you can fit in right here and you're guaranteed a high level of engagement. These are going to be the new tactics going forward, especially for a lot of these sports leagues due to the lost revenue that they had in 2020. So best believe these fourth quarter replays are here to stay. And once again, hard times breeds innovation. Now, congratulations to Giannis and his NBA championship. It's well-deserved. It's one of the greatest playoff runs we've seen in recent years. I'm related to Kawhi Leonard's playoff run in 2019. 
where he beat the 76ers with Jimmy Butler and Embiid and Simmons. He beat the Bucks and then he beat the Golden State Warriors. That was a hell of a run. Giannis had a similar run. He beat the Brooklyn Nets, especially after being down 0-2 and had brilliant performances. And then he had the hyperextension in his knee and then he was down 0-2 in the finals. And then he ended up winning four straight once they figured out how to get things going against the Suns. So I'm gonna give Giannis his flowers right now. Congratulations to Giannis. Well-deserved, gotta respect that. Now on the flip side of that coin, CP3, we gotta talk about it, especially after that game four meltdown at the end. Oh man. And the evidence is going to show it wasn't enough. You know, I'm starting to believe that CP3 has some sort of uh, cachet that Doc Rivers has with the media. Where no matter what they do, they get praised and they get opportunity after opportunity, even though their reputation sort of supersedes them. CP3 has had a lot of meltdown in the playoffs, especially in big key moments. You could look back in 2014 against OKC, especially in that game five. That was a complete meltdown. OKC ended up winning that series. You could look in 2013, even though CP3 had a good series overall, he couldn't lead his team past the Grizzlies and Zach Randolph. And then especially what the media tends not to talk about is 2019 when the series was tied 2-2 and Kevin Durant went down with that injury. For Klay Thompson and Stephen Curry with a very thin bench to basically sweep James Harden and CP3 off the court in back-to-back -back games. That says a lot. And that's why the Warriors in that series after they won, that's why they were celebrating so hard. Because CP3 talked a lot of shit and they ended up dusting them boys with no KD. That does not get talked about a lot with CP3. But once again, he has a reputation that Doc Rivers has. It's just some sort of cachet with the media where they just... They overlook these things. These guys get a lot of praise. Of course, CP3 has had a great career. He's a, almost like a prototypical point guard. But damn, it's just a lot of meltdowns in very big key situations in the playoffs. And Drew Holiday, shout out to him. He, he clampered down on CP3. He was putting that big body that he has on CP3. And it looks like it wore him down. As the series kept on going, he just became not much as a factor at the end of the series as he was in the beginning especially when they took that 2-0 lead but cp3 being the leader of the players association he's probably going to opt out get his request granted for more money because phoenix they have their hands tied behind their back they're going to have to bet on his health because they have to bring him back to show commitment of winning to devin booker because it's going to look bad if they don't re-sign cp3 because right now it's been proven for them to be successful while having this guy and it's going to say a lot to Devin Booker if they just all of a sudden just let him go over money. Now, I don't think the Phoenix Suns next season is going to be as good of a team because Cameron Payne contract is up. Bridges contract is up. DeAndre Aiden got to get paid. I mean, the Phoenix Suns don't really have the reputation as a team to go over that luxury tax. So we'll see how that ownership handles that because there's going to be quite a few teams in that kind of mid southern western, you know, region like the Denver Nuggets, the Utah Jazz, their ownerships are going to have to spend money too to keep these teams competitive. But overall, we'll see if CP3 body holds up. But once again, this guy has a cachet with the media where they just don't criticize him. 
I hear a lot like, oh man, poor CP3. He should have got a ring over Giannis. Even though clearly on your TV screen, you saw who was the better player. I should say what team had the overall better player in that series. And it was clearly Milwaukee. And it's about time that Giannis and the Bucks get their respect. And when they look back in this series and evaluate Giannis and CP3, they're going to see in games three, four, five, and six that the Suns had the lead in all those games and Milwaukee was able to make a comeback. And also games four, five, and six all came down to pretty much the final possession. So Giannis stepped up and made big plays. CP3 didn't quite step up, especially in game four. And it's going to be a mark on his resume, man. There's no doubt about it. And CP3, even though he is a Hall of Famer, there's just a lot on that resume of just showing in big key moments, he actually fell short. And that does not get talked about enough. So when the 2020 to 21 NBA season was slated to start in December, a lot of the players were upset about it. And it was kind of made known that the league, you know, and their TV partners had to get satisfied. And in the background, they mentioned the league finishing in time for the Olympics. But in retrospect, just looking at this, the Olympics and showcasing the NBA players versus the rest of the world might have been the goal here due to the fact that the league, probably in the last 20 years or so, I would say around the end of David Stern's tenure, they've been heavily investing in building infrastructures in different parts of the world to develop the players that they have over there. And the 2021 Olympics is almost like a test run of how well the development has been working over there because now you got to measure them up against the American competition, which is viewed as the gold standard. Now you may ask yourself, the NBA is very heavily invested in Australia. They have youth academies in China, India, Senegal, and Mexico. Why are they so focused on growing the game on a global level? And that's because ever since Michael Jordan left the league, domestically here in the US, the audience for the NBA has not grown. Even though the population of the country has grown, you could look at the NFL in that same time span, They've grown their audience, but the NBA domestically has not. And Michael Jordan kind of laid out the blueprint for them to grow their game globally because he was basically the meal ticket that opened up the door on the global stage for expanding the league into a brand new audience and growing their business that way since it's already been proven with the Michael Jordan experiment and it was carried on in the 2000s by Yao Ming. And the league saw the power that a foreign-born player had coming from a country that has a huge population, they saw how it could really affect the league. I mean, you look at the TV deal that the Rockets get and how much revenue it generates. The people in China view the Rockets as a national team. That's very powerful, especially for a country of billions of people. That's why you've seen a few years back, the Kings and the Indiana Pacers went over to India, another country that's growing in population, and they're trying to promote the game there. And once again, one of the academies I had mentioned is in India. So the NBA understands the power of growing an audience, especially in countries with growing populations. But the best way of doing this, and the only blueprint that they really have of doing this, is having a foreign-born player of that country play in the NBA, aka the example with Yao Ming. Now, the NBA right now is broadcasted in 215 different countries and 50 different languages between linear TV and streaming services. And last year, the Philippines, on an international level, gave the NBA their highest ratings. All of this is by design. This is not an accident. This is the result of heavy investment 
especially I would say in the last 15 years of David Stern's tenure. It started then and it's continuing with Adam Silver. And right now it's just starting to pay dividends where a lot of the American fan base can see a lot of players that are foreign born right now, especially coming out of last year's draft in 2020. I mean, you could even look at Team Canada right now. They got Lou Dory, RJ Barrett, Andrew Wiggins, Shea Alexander, Jamal Murray. I mean, just looking at the top players under the age of 25, at least 10 of them are foreign born. You could look at Luca, Ben Simmons, Sabonis, Shea Alexander, Jamal Murray. I mean, shit, you could even look at the top two voters in the MVP for 2021, Jokic and Embiid all foreign born. So having the NBA season end just in time for the 2021 Olympics is important because they basically could showcase the rest of the world how that talent's been cultivated and they could measure them up against Team USA. But it also kind of exposed a few different things about the NBA game, especially domestically. They definitely tweaked the NBA product so much so it could be good on television that it actually kind of made the NBA a bit softer. Believe it or not, international basketball is kind of rougher than NBA basketball. Players are not going to get these little ticky-tack fouls. The international stage is way more physical because the NBA product right now is tweaked. So on TV, the NBA stars could be more emphasized. That's one thing that's getting exposed in this year's Olympics. Also, the rest of the world is almost caught up. And when you see Team USA lose to certain countries, it gives a lot of these players the belief that they can be just as good as NBA players. That facade that Team USA used to have where they're pretty much the gold standard and they're unbeatable, it's starting to wear away. But best believe Adam Silver and the NBA are right behind that because they're funding that infrastructure and they're pushing so the players can have that confidence so they can grow their game on an international level. Since that's where most of the NBA growth has been coming from ever since Jordan retired in 2003. So when you hear Adam Silver talk about these type of champion leagues where NBA teams will play overseas against a different club, that may be the end goal for way down the road. But the main goal right now is to cultivate the talents in these different countries and have those players play in the NBA, thus kind of following the Yao Ming blueprint. Where you have a player from those growing countries playing in the NBA, thus drawing that attention towards the NBA. And they're going to grow and more money will be dumped in, into their infrastructure and eventually their leagues will be good enough where the individual NBA teams could possibly go over there and start playing games. So right now, the 2021 Olympic team is almost like a group of guinea pigs for the league and the rest of the international infrastructure to take a look at how they measure up to some of the NBA talents. And when you look at the guys in the NBA today, especially under the age of 25, how many foreign-born players there are, like Luka, Jokic, Embiid, all of this is not by coincidence. This is almost about 20 to 30 years of investment by the NBA. And every time the Olympics come up, it's almost like a trial run to see by how much has the rest of the world really caught up to the NBA. This is so embedded into the league that there's a few NBA coaches that have programs internationally. For example, Mike Brown, used to coach the Cleveland Cavaliers when LeBron was there. He has a program in Nigeria. Doris Burke, she was responsible for recruiting Pascal Siakam into the NBA. She was going out to his village talking to his pastor. She even told a story where she was supposed to meet up with his pastor to convince him to come into the league like a third time, and he ended up getting killed. But she was going all the way out there just to recruit Pascal Siakam. This is how deep these things are embedded by, that 
a lot of analysts, beat writers, a lot of people who have affiliations to the NBA. They go out and get some of these guys to come into the league. But at the end of the day, with the new generation of NBA players coming into the league and the generation that's already in the league, especially under the age of 25, it's already a global game. And when the Olympics come around, it's a way for us to measure visually how much has the rest of the world caught up. This is how we should be looking at the Olympics every time they come around. Because Team USA losses, it should be more common in the future because it's by design. Especially if Team USA continues to have players jump in and out of the lineups. Most of these international teams keep the same group of players over and over again. You could even look at Luis Scola. He's like in his fourth Olympic. So you could tell how old he is. But a lot of these international teams, they tend to stay together as a unit. And the international rules favor them. So young kids that are watching these Olympic teams compete against Team USA gradually are going to be less scared of Team USA and deem them as more beatable as time goes on. Once again, that's due to the fact that the NBA is investing in the development of the youth academies overseas and just the overall infrastructure in many different countries of any player that's skilled in basketball. And also due to the influx of international talent that's already in the league right now. I mean, just look at Giannis winning the NBA Finals and winning MVP. That opened up the eyes of a lot of kids that are not born in America that they can make the NBA and not only make the NBA, they can dominate. Now, since the mid-2010s, there's been a heavy correlation between the analytically driven front offices of the NBA and the decline of black head coaches. There's been sort of this era of the NBA, quiet is kept, but a lot of guys are coming in from MIT, Stanford, never even played high school basketball and are approaching a lot of coaches saying the data backs me up. So what I say is basically liquid gold. And in between that time period till now, we've seen some of the worst built teams in the NBA. I remember the Memphis Grizzlies were analytically driven, especially with Chandler Parsons. I don't know how the hell they gave him that contract. That was one of the worst built teams. The Phoenix Suns for years were very driven on analytics. They were telling Earl Watson, hey, we need you to find guys to shoot this amount of three pointers. That's not how it works. And a lot of black head coaches, especially guys that understood the league, understood guys mindsets that have the experience. They did not understand this. You could use analytics as a tool, but it can't be your main arsenal. We also seen guys like Sam Hankey out in Philadelphia using analytics to predict what draft picks that they can get, promoting losing as almost a form of branding. But yet he gets praised for some odd reason. But low key, he might be blackballed from the league because it's just a bad image to even hire him at this point. But he's probably off to bigger and better things. But that's another example of the analytically driven crowd, but success never seems to follow it. And of course, the queen bee, the queen bee of analytics, Daryl Morey, who had a Rockets team who pretty much every single player at the end of that tenure was sick of being there. And they felt like their game was basically molded down to just being a nail on the wheel. I mean, you look at Trevor Reza made comments. PJ Tucker made comments. Capella no longer fit on the squad. Mike D'Antoni felt suffocated. Daryl Morey basically narrowed everybody's game down to a formula a one-way formula not taking the human element into consideration the fact that basketball is a multifaceted game guys can post up guys can utilize different skill sets that they had 
but he basically molded everyone down to just being a cog in the wheel and that's where the team heavily driven analytically crowd or whatever you want to call them that's where they fail because in the nba playoffs the refs start tucking in their whistle guys start getting anxiety because the pressure builds and none of these things you could just plug into a formula to figure that out and if you look at the last three nba champions the toronto raptors the lakers and the bucks they're exactly not built with analytically driven players they don't have those prototypes shit all three of those teams couldn't even really even shoot threes like that but yet the last three nba champions are not analytically driven teams but at the same time <laughs> let's keep it real the few black coaches that were hired in this time period were hired for lame duck jobs oh man this is hilarious i'm just like what and then they would get fired right away for not making the teams better but i give it up to this new generation of nba players coming into the league when they don't relate or mess with you they really don't fuck with you you could look at jim boylan in chicago he got fired i mean he just had to go the players were just not messing with him at all you look at john balen with the Cavs, oh, that was just a mess and you could look at the pacers coach this year his players stopped responding to him. I believe one player almost ended up fighting him live on TV on during the game. <laughs> he didn't want to. He didn't want to check back in. <laughs> they fired Nate McMillan over that. And look at the job Nate McMillan did with the Hawks. He led them to the Eastern Conference Finals. That's another prime example. But seven out of the nine head coaches hired this offseason are of African American descent. It seems like things are sort of headed back into the direction. That they were before and a lot of these guys that got the jobs this offseason it's well deserved you look at umi odaka with the celtics jason kidd with the mavericks willie green with the pacers chauncey billups with the blazers the wizards got west unsealed jr the magic got coach mosley i mean he used to be the mavs assistant coach at least he got a head coaching job with the magic well deserved and quiet is kept mark cuban i'm wondering if he was under pressure to hire a black coach because quiet is kept he's been struggling to get free agents to go there i don't know what's going on with dallas i see a lot of beat writers they make side remarks when they mention the culture of dallas and they're sort of implying certain things i don't want to say it off rip here but you get what i'm saying there's, there's something breeding over there that's not right there's no state taxes in dallas it's a nice city i don't know why mark cuban can't recruit players to come there we also got to keep in mind the great state of texas has limitation on child support money so a lot of these nba players like messing around with these Dadianas, they actually won't get as caught up in the great state of texas because there's a limitation on how much a woman can earn on child support mark cuban has no problem being hands-on with his team we've seen him say that he's not going to play the national anthem even though he knows it's in the collective bargaining agreement i guess he's trying to seem like he's woke but then again if you backtrack and look at his record didn't he say he was scared of African-Americans in hoodies? And then he made the comments about Eastern European players being better than American players. And then we've seen how he treated Dennis Smith Jr. once he got his Larry Bird hope in Luka. They sort of tossed him to the side like nothing. They didn't even try to cultivate his talent. That was a little weird. Once again, there's an issue that's going on in Dallas because Mark Cuban is definitely hands-on. But then when something bad happens, all of a sudden he doesn't know anything. We've seen what happened with the 
culture of uh, harassment that they had in their front offices. All of a sudden, he was hands off. He didn't know nothing. Something's rotten over there, but I can't quite put my finger on it. But in due time, I believe it will come out. But once again, it's great to see that the men who built the league definitely get considered for coaching jobs in which they probably already qualify for due to their experience coming up through the college system, the AAU, and getting into the league. They can relate to the players a lot more. But there has been a brewing sense of frustration, especially among NBA circles, as we've seen it play out with the Timberwolves hiring their coach as Damian Lillard came out and he sort of emphasized that they should have given David Vanderpool a shot. Why wasn't he hired? It was the middle of the season. A brand new coach had to fly in all the way from Toronto, teach the players a brand new system. How come they didn't go with David Vanderpool, at least as an interim coach? That didn't make any sense. You see players vocally voicing out their opinions because this has been something that's been brewing up. I've seen Jay Will on ESPN make remarks to Stephen A. Smith. You know, they only have a few black head coaches. He made a little snarky remark in a funny way, but he was serious about it. Players were noticing, hey, how come they're getting rid of a lot of guys? And then we only see guys get hired for lame duck jobs that we know this team came and win. They got nothing. So it's been like that since 2014. That seems to be the introduction of the heavy analytically driven teams. I'm telling you, there's a correlation with that. Because a lot of these guys are coming from these tech schools, MIT, Stanford, a lot of these, you know, accredited schools, they basically say, hey, we have the data to back up what we're saying. So what we're saying is, is basically almost liquid gold. Even though you played in the NBA, your word doesn't hold any weight because the math and science backs up my data. Even though most of the math and science that they're using, well, I should say most of the math that they're using is based off of what little kids are practicing from the time that they're young, going through the high school system, AAU system, and then by the time they get to the pros, they perfected what they practice. So in the last few years, I would say kids coming up actually have more freedom than a lot of NBA players as far as showing their versatile skill sets. But once again, this is where the heavy analytically driven crowd kind of hits the wall. Because a lot of their data is based off of what young kids see NBA players are doing. They're imitating it and they're practicing it as they're going through AAU, high school, college, etc. By the time they get to the league, you can pull up analytics to see, okay, players are shooting threes like Steph now. Let's, let's go with that. Or I could basically give you an example of today. There's probably kids right now that are like 18, 17, 16, that are over 7 feet. They're trying to play like Embiid or Jokic. So eventually, all those kids, when they come up, you could pull up the analytics of finding the centers that are hitting threes and getting eight assists, 11 assists a game because those guys have seen it already. So they're practicing that. They're like, oh, I could be a seven footer making passes like a point guard. This is where the analytics tend to hit the wall. And when it comes to the league, especially in the playoffs, the analytics have shown that they really equate to poor adjustments. We've seen great coaching from guys like Tyron Lue this season. Monty Williams, they both made major adjustments in the playoffs. You see Monty Williams coach up DeAndre Aiden, Bridges, Cameron Payne, Cameron Johnson. I mean, just major adjustments to put these guys in the most advantageous position where they can thrive. Same thing for Tyron Lue in the series against Utah. We've seen him use Reggie Jackson and utilize Terrence Mann in their best position to make them thrive and put Paul George in a good situation to lead him on to the next round. 
these guys made major adjustments in their series and they've shown this is what good coaching is about not only you coach guys up you can make major adjustments mid-series and these are skill sets i always criticize guys like doc rivers i don't know where he always gets the cachet to get another job or just get the same appraisal that cp3 kind of gets him and doc rivers man they get the same you know appraisals from the media i don't know how but they have a lot of failures on their resume to get all this love it's, it's very strange but doc rivers is the only coach in my opinion especially african-american coach that doesn't really deserve certain jobs for the most part he's had way too many opportunities he has coached way too many superstars to fall short as much as he has i mean in the last few years i can only think of mike d'antoni and doc rivers as two head coaches that coached a bunch of high-end talent and never even made the finals but it is what it is it's great to see some of these coaches get their just due it's well deserved and it's great to see the league is kind of shifting towards more of a balance where analytics can be used as a tool but not the main thing in the arsenal sort of like how the golden state warriors use analytics they already have championship pedigree with jerry west how he built that team and steve kerr as a six-time you know nba champion with jordan they all have finals experience they know that the game is multifaceted and coaching just based off of analytics only it tends to take away from that now the ncaa jumped ahead of the curb as they seen a lot of states was about to follow california and that fair to play act as they're allowing players under the ncaa to monetize their name their image and their likeness but make no mistake about this the biggest winners was the sportswear companies as they can now lock in a lot of these athletes for when they're hyped up since high school. And they could possibly lock them up at a lower rate versus locking them up once they hit the NBA. So they're going to be saving money eventually. And also the client agencies. They get to get a cut out of these kids' sponsorships. And also the biggest... <laughs> the biggest winners is the government, of course. They get to collect taxes on all this instead of dealing with a lot of these institutions that hide behind the non-profit status. That's one of the biggest things. It's not just Governor Newsom saying, oh, we care about the athletes all of a sudden. I'm with LeBron James. We all care about you. There's a goal with this. There's a lot of money to be made. This is a brand new market that just opened up. And best believe LeBron is a Nike athlete. He represents their interests. So their interest is going to be to lock up some of these guys and not to have to go through these colleges in order to get sponsorships. They can go directly to the athlete now and lock them up at a good rate before they hit the league. But of course, it presents a great opportunity for these young kids, especially a lot of them, to help out their families. They can do sponsored social media posts. They can do training summer camps. They can autograph merchandise and put up for sale. That's a big thing. That's a big hustle in the college system. Guys autograph jerseys. It's just, that's one big scam, man. But now these kids can actually profit off of that. And I wonder if they're going to reinstate guys like uh, Chris Weber and any guy in, in like Reggie Bush in college football. They got to reinstate these guys because these guys were incredible. But unlike those two players, guys today like Mikey Williams, really hyped up high school player. Uh, he's not even a junior in high school yet. And he signed a deal with a sports management company to handle his likeness and his image. But once again, this is a great opportunity for all those that are involved. This is going to be a whole 
brand new marketplace. And it's great to see that the NCAA don't have that stronghold that they used to have. And that's all due to technology and just the influx of money and just opportunity that's coming in because of the technology. And the NCAA can no longer take advantage of that. You know, one of the best moments of this year's NBA playoffs is definitely the Suns and Four guy. I mean, <laughs> not only did he defend himself against two Denver Nugget fans in the stands, but he ended up saying Suns and Four, and that actually happened. This guy went viral, and at the end of the day, the name of the game is to ride that wave. He got contacted by Devin Booker. He met up with Jamal Murray. This guy had after-party shows for the NBA Finals. He got a bobblehead, an action figure NFT, I believe. I mean, I'm just wondering how the Phoenix Suns even feel about this. Because you know they don't want to be affiliated. I mean, they're stuck in like sort of this gray area where they're like, damn, this could be great promotion for the franchise. But at the same time, we don't want to be affiliated with just people fighting in the stands almost like we're promoting this shit and i'm wondering behind closed doors what did they say to devin booker about contacting this guy because that is a moment and devin booker is not in the wrong for that because once again the guy was defending himself but the name of the game is to ride that wave and that's another way these stars can get their names out there their likeness their image in front of millions of faces on social media and you can't hate on that but unfortunately for the phoenix suns as a franchise, they cannot ride that wave. And it's very unfortunate because he did kick their ass and the Suns did end up winning in four. That's the crazy shit right there. <laughs> Yo, this Suns in four guy was really riding that wave. This guy had hosting after party shows. Like He is almost like a legend in Phoenix right now. And the Suns and just overall that kind of Southern Southwest region their fan bases are nuts. They kind of have that WWE vibe. And in a way, the NBA, they need that sort of fandom. You can't let the atmosphere get way too corporate, way too vanilla. It has an effect on the television product at the end of the day. But that region with the Nuggets, the Utah Jazz, the Phoenix Suns, and just their fan bases colliding, it's going to be a hell of a thing for the league. And they should promote that a lot more because... Low-key, those are great rival cities. And just the way their teams are brewing up, like their young players coming into their prime all at the same time, it's going to be a good thing. The league and the Phoenix Suns shouldn't run away from this viral moment too much because it's almost like the fuel to the upcoming moment of when these three teams are going to be major rivals. And it's going to be a beautiful thing, man. It's going to be a beautiful thing. But it's, it's, it's still a tricky situation because you don't want to promote fans fighting. But this moment right here is going to add fuel to that fire because the league needs rivals, especially rivals among teams. Forget the superstars, just rivals among cities and teams. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. And it's rare that just a moment like this happens to sort of propel the foreseeable mayhem that's already coming ahead. So during the NBA Finals, Adam Silver had a one hour presser with the media and boy, was he asked some questions. Oh, he was on a tightrope just trying to do this balancing act of just kind of avoiding certain questions and just dancing around, doing this seance talk, just kind of getting to the point, but not really getting to the point, but kind of also at the same time, 
giving the media the insight of what the leak is thinking and how they're making adjustments, especially after this pandemic issue. Now, he was asked a question about the NBA's future relationship with China. And boy, oh boy, was the NBA PR department going apeshit. Let's see what he had to say. Um, take the second part of your question first. Um, some number of years ago, we had discussions with the Chinese Basketball Association, which of course is now led by Yao Ming, about potentially partnering on a league. That's nothing we've talked about all that much um, in, the, in the last few years. I think the, the Chinese Basketball Association continues to thrive on, under Yao's direction. Um, and that would be my expectation that they will remain um, independent of the NBA. In terms of the future of our relationship with China, meaning the NBAs, I mean, of course, we're, it's hard to divorce what's happening with the NBA from larger geopolitical issues. Exactly. Because the NBA is in business right now of just growing their league on a global stage because domestically, the league has not really grown since Jordan left it. 2003 this is a tricky situation that the league is in they're kind of in a gray area because the ideology of just the chinese government and the u.s government will never ever be the same so they have to sort of tread this middle ground and try to find some common ground through sports that might be the marketing campaign to kind of you know ease the u.s consumer into understanding why the nba has a relationship with china you know, between the U.S. and China, um, you know, I do think it remains important that particularly when tensions are high between government governments that we foster these um, sports, you know, educational, cultural relationships. You know, I've said that from the very beginning. Um, it certainly doesn't mean that we are blessing everything that happens in China by any means, um, and we are at root an American company. And so we, we follow U.S. government policy. But it's my expectation that we will continue to distribute our games in China through your service, Tencent, and others, and that- And that's a hell of a deal. That Tencent deal is a hell of a deal the NBA got. And the Houston Rockets are viewed as China's team, in China, of course. But that's very important because that revenue that's being generated off of that is insane. And best believe the NBA gets broadcast in 250 different countries, over 50 different languages. So this global outreach, the NBA is heavily invested in it as they have leagues throughout various continents. And they have a game plan on developing some of these leagues and some of this talent to cultivate it to get into the U.S. market, a.k.a. the NBA market. And thus it will promote the game on a global stage we can play a productive um, role in, in helping the people of the United States and the people of China have a better understanding of each other and see that we're all human beings and that there is commonality between us. And I, and, and I think that form of engagement is critically important. Once again, this is how the league is going to try to formulate this relationship. This is going to be the marketing behind it. We're trying to find common ground through sports and we're all humans at the end of the day. The league at the end of the day is gonna to have to justify this relationship with China to the US consumer, especially after they sort of had to bow down 
with the preseason issue that happened when the players went over in China. If we're going to work together to try to resolve some of our issues, and those issues include dealing with future pandemics and dealing with global climate issues and and also global competition. U.S. and China, best believe, they are in competition with each other, and it's only going to intensify going forward. Economic issues and human rights issues that that they have to begin from a point of discussions directly with each other. And I think to the extent that you know through sports, that again, as I said, that that's something that we can um, at least find common ground on. Adam Silver has a hell of a job. People thought the Donald Sterling situation was crazy. He has to deal with the league losing the revenue in 2020. He has to deal with this China situation and at the same time trying to grow the game. Because once again, domestically, the game has not grown in viewership since 2003, since Jordan had left. It's on a steady decline. So globally is where they're going to find their growth. And also at the same time, they're going to tap into that money. And at the same time, they get to compete with the NFL as far as the growth. Because the NFL is getting it domestically, but not globally. So the NBA could be the first to tap into that market and get that growth. Once again, Adam Silver is in that gray area with that China situation that Daryl Morey had caused. Because at the same time, they could not denounce the way China handles their issues. But at the same time, they almost had to be careful and not offend the U.S. consumer into kind of shaming Del Mori for his freedom of speech. It was a very, very great area and sticky situation the league is in because best believe that Chinese relationship is very important for the growth of the league. Now, Adam Silver was also asked about the future of the playing tournament as a lot of players, especially Mr. LeBron James, surprisingly had complained about it. Now, the playing tournament does bring some brand new interest to the game. But at the same time, it kind of makes a seventh seed kind of pointless. Because what's the point of finishing seventh if you still have to fight with the eighth seed and perhaps the ninth and tenth seed just to secure your spot? And at the same time, all the metrics and stats of the actual game of the playing tournament does not count. It's almost like it's an official game, but it's not counted toward the record books or anything. The stats don't even matter. Sure. So first on the play-in tournament, it's my expectation that we'll continue it for next season. Um, we both, course, of course, need agreement from our teams and the Players Association. And I know, you know, Michelle Roberts doesn't have an easy job. She has 450 players. Some maybe have um, louder voices than others at the table. But again, I think ultimately, although there were critics, not just LeBron, but, you know, others who weren't in favor it and maybe some teams who weren't thrilled with it, I think overall it was very positive. And it is very positive because at the same time, you see how teams are starting to maneuver for the NBA draft. Teams are not caring about it as much. The tanking situation is almost about alleviated. Most teams aren't trying to tank and it keeps the league competitive. A lot of teams are staying on their toes. They see the possibility of making the playoffs and boosting for the revenues, especially after the pandemic. So overall, the playing does have its positives. Some players may bitch about it, but overall, it's, it's definitely garnering more interest. You know, um, for the league and the players, I mean, certainly there have been some suggestions about some tweaks we should consider. But again, it's, I think once we bring it back to our owners um, for a vote and the Players Association meets and has an opportunity to consider it, it's, it's my expectation that it will continue for next season.
Now, David Stern was also asked about the NBA thinking about the expansion. We heard a lot about expansion rumors, especially after the 2020 season, you know, was going through its flux. It might have been delayed. It might have been canceled. How was the league going to make revenues back? So things at the time were in flux, but the league was able to get a private loan with one of their partners. I believe it was probably State Farm, one of their ad partners, or even a big company like Disney, some big institution loaned the money at a low interest rate and they were able to divvy it out to all the teams as a form of relief and they're pretty much have to pay off that loan within the next like 10 years it's a really good loan you can only get that type of loan from accredited companies or just institutions so they're not really worried about making interest on the money they're sort of helping the nba out because they are a partner and their survival is good for their business so the NBA got some alleviation through that. They didn't have to worry about expansion, getting a, a one lump sum payment of cash from the new owners. So Adam Silver was asked about it. Let's see what he had to say. I think ultimately, although there were critics, not just LeBron, but you know others who weren't in favor it, and maybe some teams who weren't thrilled with it. I think overall it was very positive, you know, um, for the league and the players. I mean, certainly there have been some suggestions about some tweaks we should consider. But again, it's, I think once we bring it back to our owners um, for a vote and the Players Association meets and has an opportunity to consider it, it's, it's my expectation that it'll continue for next season. Um, in terms of expansion, you know, I, I know that was reported that, you know, when revenues were down, we were looking more seriously at expansion. I mean, it, it, it didn't work exactly like that, largely because expansion is a multi-year process. So it wasn't as if, up the pandemic came, we're 40% down, we can quickly collect some expansion revenue. So, you know, yes, it's true that we actually had some time um, while we were um, initially shut down and we were meeting more often with our teams to think a little bit more about it. But it seemed the consensus was certainly during a pandemic that wasn't the right time to expand. And also, let me say this, certain cities got major consideration especially among teams that exist currently right now. They may look to move to either Kansas City or Seattle. They were pretty much the front runners as they had the infrastructure to support an NBA team. They had the airports, enough corporations that already exist in the city, the nightlife, the population. Those cities are going to get major considerations for certain franchises to move there. Understand, but that we should continue, should continue to consider it. I'll say, what I think it's lost sometimes is that from an economic standpoint, from the way the league looks at it is that we're in essence selling equity in the league. You have 30 partners and just say hypothetically expanded by two more teams, then you'd have 32 partners. So, And when you have 32 partners, you're diluting the product. NBA to me is already diluted enough. They kept on expanding, especially after the Orlando Magic came in and it just pretty much dilutes the product. It's very hard to find enough players at a high enough talent level to keep the product interesting on television. So once you keep expanding the league, it's like you kind of have a bit more lesser talent playing and overall the product quality kind of comes down. So it's a tricky situation with that. Yeah, you get a cash lump sum payment from the brand new owners. And at the same time, you're gonna increase your overhead costs. You have a national television deal or a global television rights you know instead of it being divided 30 ways it's divided 32 ways so yeah, exactly right there you're increasing your overhead cost so your tv deal now 
is setting it a split among 30 teams now it's 32 and etc etc so all the revenues you make you have to split it with more people that means you're gonna get less of the pie it kind of has a trickle down effect so it wasn't an instant solution like i said before the main solution nba found was getting a private loan from one of their tv partners or just one of their partners in general that was not interested in making interest off that loan just sort of getting a nice repayment and keeping the league functioning because their survival is important for their own business it's it's sort of cash up front depending on what you sell the expansion team for but it's not necessarily the windfall that i think people think it is the most important considerations for us when we look at expansion is will it ultimately grow the pie meaning and it's potentially 30 more jobs if you expand with two teams you expand the league's footprint um what you know how does that help us in in, in varying ways um sort of increase support nationally so um we'll continue to look at it. i mean i've said this many times before i mean we're certainly not suggesting we're locked at 30 teams you know i think at some point it'll make sense to expand but um it, it's just not at the top of the agenda right now and also the league could expand but their talent pool has to increase like the number of superstars that come into a league particularly in one draft class has to change all that like for example in the 96 draft class ai kobe steve nash they have to have like a few excellent classes come in like that then they could think about expanding because we just have a plethora of superstars and we could actually dilute this product a little bit more and spread it out but i'll link in the description below the video i made about the private loan the nba had gotten last year in order to maintain their survival and just help out some of the smaller market teams especially on some of their costs of not keeping these stadiums full and just operating during the pandemic now next up adam silver was asked about load management as sometimes it creates a sticky situation because on television fans tend to check into the games to see their favorite superstars or even they attend the games and pay high ticket prices to see certain guys but all of a sudden they're healthy and they're not playing so adam silver was asked about the future of load management and if it actually really works you know, I, I, we haven't addressed it so specifically for next season only because um, I think as we watch what's happening um, with COVID, you know, we're mindful that as much as I want to sort of close the book and say we've lived through it, you know, of course, I'm reading the same stories you all are, you know, about Delta variants and other things. I mean, again, I'm, I'm very hopeful we're going to put it behind us, but that could have an impact on, on how we schedule rest. I will say, again, this is not something that's been talked a lot about in the context of injuries, but resting is up over 100% um, this season from last season. And that's because players are not practicing. There's been barely any practices or some, most of these practices have been walkthroughs, but there's really been no time for players to practice. That was a clever trick by Adam Silver right there. The players rests are up 100%. That's because there's no practices. And the, the issue which we're trying to get to the root of is, um, does resting work, frankly? Does load management work? I mean, and there's different theories out there on it. And what's, what's most surprising, as I said, it's, it's not just about injuries up this season. We've seen this upward trend for several years. And, and that's because the specialization of basketball from a lot of these guys from a young age. They're going through all these AAU programs, playing multiple games in a weekend, 
sometimes even in a day they're playing four or five games and the shit takes a toll by the time they make it into the league these guys are getting major injuries by the age of 23. you sort of see the same thing happening in baseball with all that tommy john surgeries from these pitchers it's basically the specialization of sports kids from a young age they're prepping themselves to become professionals to believe that with the investment the level of sophistication the number of you know doctors um like the, the amount of analytics we look at that the data we're able to collect that we couldn't in the, in, in the old days that we putting the pandemic aside would have seen improvements and we haven't seen that yet and so i mean part of it of course you know load management or resting there's an economic impact on that there's no doubt that if you're and, and I understand it from a fan standpoint. I mean, they want to see their teams advance and they're even sympathetic to a certain amount of rest, but they don't necessarily want to pay the same price for the ticket if the stars aren't playing or whatever television, you know, programming looks like in the future in terms of how people are charged for it, you know? Exactly, and how much you guys have been charging for it. You guys want more and more money every new TV deal. So you better guarantee some of these guys are playing. They better not be healthy just sitting on the bench. But this issue, once again, it's pretty much going to have to start with the AU and sort of the high school slash college system. How much are these guys being worked out, burned out, and how they basically are coming up before they make it into the NBA? Because a lot of players are getting major injuries even before the age of 24. It's very odd. But once again, I believe it's because of the specialization in sports. These kids from a very young age all year round are playing multiple games and sometimes multiple games in one day not even in a week in one day and it's pretty much has caused a bunch of injuries by the time these kids reach into their first four to five years into the league but so they might be both rooting for rest but saying the game doesn't have the same value and i think we we got to find the right sort of um midpoint there between you know clearly if players hardly played at all there would be a dramatic reduction presumably in the amount of injuries although we see a lot of off-season injuries now we see a lot of injuries during training and and load management isn't just a function of how many minutes in a game a player plays but how much what what else they're you know what other burdens they're putting on their bodies when they're not playing and how hard they're training and what they're doing in the off-season so it it's it's a nothing could be more important for our league than keeping especially a league where stars drive so much of the interest of, of keeping them on the floor longer so I, my only thing on load management is sometimes i think people just accept to me in a sort of non-scientific way that load management works it's, it's just not all that clear and and i think it's another area where historically some of the teams have thought about um their medical protocols as kind of their secret sauce and I think at least there's a recognition now, especially players have shorter contracts. Um, there's more movement of players that we all have a common interest in players staying healthy and that we should, in the same way we have in many business areas in the league, be looking at best practices when it comes to rehabilitation and training of our players. So it, it will remain a focus on the league. But, and, and again, what the optimal number of games are in the season. You know, as I said, we've had this 82 game season for 50 plus years. I mean, is 82 optimal? You know, it's interesting. We got this experiment during the pandemic to move to 72. Everybody thought that was the cure-all that we, we just lopped 10 games off the season. I mean, obviously injuries are, are up. So that 
as they should be up because there's short rest time between the games in shorter months you had to complete the season and also players were fresh off of coming off that bubble so of course injuries should have been up and now it's just one data point but um it's, it's this is one that requires a lot more study yeah just summarize some of adam silver's talking points here it was interesting that he said players have short-term contracts and it's going to lead to a lot more load management now because of the number of years aren't even guaranteed because they're going to be fighting for brand new contracts and i'm saying injury free is going to be very important so that's an interesting dynamic there and also i want to emphasize remember high school kids amateur kids kids in college now can monetize their likeness so best believe there's going to be a major incentive for these kids to stay on point and keep training keep playing more games and keep focusing on specializing on their talents so these kids may even come into the nba by the time they get up to that level they some of them may come in burned out so this is going to be ratcheted up to the next level you're going to have 11 12 year olds nine year old phenoms or potential phenoms just being hammered down by the amount of games they have to play every single weekend different aau tournaments so injuries from future stars at a very young age could be very likely. But once again, this really starts from just the youth leagues going on up. That Adam Silver is going to have to make certain adjustments or just make certain observations. How are these kids coming up? Why are they playing six, seven games between Friday and Sunday or just every weekend? It just doesn't make any sense. And by the time this kid becomes a star and gets into the league, by the time he's 22, 23, he's getting major injuries that normally a 31-year-old would get. These are sort of the dynamics that are kind of playing out. And eventually, Adam Silver, they're probably going to look into this. Because baseball kind of has the same issue, once again, with that Tommy John surgery. Pitchers are coming in, having to have these surgeries at a young age. Now, the questions kept coming and coming. And old boy, Adam Silver was asked about the black head coaching issue. And for the league, it, this was a major issue, especially around the time analytics was introduced around 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18. Around those years, a lot of black coaches started disappearing from the league. Or if a black coach was hired at the time, he would get these lame duck jobs. So Adam Silver was asked about the black head coaching issue. It was sort of grouped in with the women's issue, but mainly we have to focus on the black head coaching issue because black players are the ones that built the league from the ground up to where it is right now. So let's check out what he had to say. Well, in, in terms of black coaches, obviously we, we've seen positive developments there in terms of the number of vacancies that are being. Definitely seven out of the nine head coaches hired this off season are of African-American descent. But once again, Adam Silver getting asked the tough questions, boy. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. And Phil, I, I, I will say that not unlike a lot of organizations that are um, dealing with diversity issues, this is something that requires daily attention. Um, so, you know, I, again, positive movement in that direction. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not going to rest on our laurels there. It's something that back to the point about data, it's something that's a regular part 
of our team meetings, of our board of governors meetings now, not just in the coaches ranks, coaching ranks, but across the league and making sure teams are focused on it and that we're also working collectively to develop pools of future general managers like James Jones and, you know, future great coaches like, like Monty, you know, it's so that that's part of the work that we have to do in terms of women. Um, it's, it's a little bit frustrating. Um, it's an area where um, even just looking around the room here, it's like you'd like to see more women represented in the room here today in all aspects of our business. And that's, we've, we've historically made more progress in race. And the league definitely has made progress, but the only issue with the women's coaching thing is that you have to understand a lot of these players, they're gonna end up having issues with the coach regardless. So in this era right now, it's gonna look really strange if the NBA gets a woman head coach and then eventually when they have the falling out, it's gonna look bad when it's a bunch of guys just ignoring a female coach, which the same thing happens to the men's coaches. They kind of get ignored and all of a sudden they get tuned out and ownership or just even the coach himself starts realizing it's time to go. But that overall is gonna be a bad look right now, especially in this climate. If just players are starting to tune a woman coach out, which eventually will happen regardless of sex, but the media will frame it into a women's issue when it's really not. Rather than on gender. But I think that's beginning to change. It's slow, it's frustrating, but it's, it's, it's the work that we have to do every day to change awareness and, and, and develop pools of candidates as well. And there you go, Adam Silver, definitely getting asked the hard questions. But at the end of the day, he's done a great job. A lot has come to his plate, especially after the Donald Sterling situation. People thought that was a big deal. But just dealing with the pandemic, you know, Kobe Bryant death, and just the league going through financial issues, losing our revenue for the 2020 season, stoppage, the bubble, making sure it's safe, and just getting through the following season while at the same time satisfying their TV partners, making sure that the NBA is ready to be showcased for the Olympics. It's a lot of things coming down his head, man. And it's a good thing he doesn't have a set of hair because he would be completely bald right now. But overall, I give Adam Silver an A-plus on the job he's done as commissioner of the league so far. It's a hell of a start. You know, the past two NBA seasons have been very interesting because they've gone late into the summer. And just looking at this year's NBA Finals ratings, you're going to have to compare it when things were normal back in 2019. You can't compare it to last year because that was a, a, that was a, that was a very rare occasion. And just ratings should have been down for that because that season overall, it was very fluky. It stopped and it started again. It's a little gray area with that. But comparing it to 2019, it was down. But the way it was marketed, they sort of marketed in a clever way, saying that it was higher versus last year. But of course, it should have been higher versus last year. But just looking at the last two seasons, the NBA kind of have their data and their proof that having the league run through the summer months might not be the best of ideas. Because they were, you know, kind of floating these things around back in 2015, 16, when the ratings were high and the Warriors were going up against the Cavs. They were floating this around that they can take up more real estate. And right now they have the data to show that yes, that's not really the case. And they're also going to have to focus more of their promotional dollars and resources towards their upcoming stars. 
or just stars outside of LeBron James. Because the league right now, if you look at a lot of the younger players and just overall the landscape, the league don't have that transcendent player that's going to be guaranteed to be in the finals every year. So there's going to be a lot of marketing and promotional, you know, adjustments that they're going to have to make. They're going to kind of have to go the NFL route for a little bit. And when I say the NFL route, I mean promoting the teams, perhaps promoting a team rival. Like the overall game is going to be good. Just don't tune in for this star player. You might have to tune in to see this whole team go up against this other team. They may have to go to that because there's no real personalities right now that's jumping out off the screen that's really transcending off the court outside of lebron james zion he doesn't really have that personality yet but his game really kind of transcends off the court for right now but is he going to be a factor when it comes to winning because you have to have both you have to be winning and you have to be transcended off the court to make that cultural impact so if the next generation as of right now don't have that it guy that has a transcendent game and has something personality wise that transcends off the court once you don't have those two things as the formula you're gonna have to start promoting the game the teams the rival and right now the league is in a good place because a lot of teams and cities are competitive to win an nba championship it's good to have the fan base not knowing who's gonna make the finals so smaller market teams and their fan bases, particularly, I would say, in the Southwest region right now, between the Nuggets, the Jazz, the Dallas Mavericks, the Phoenix Suns, there's something brewing over there. They have a, and they have a great fan base, particularly Utah and Phoenix. They have great fan bases. The league is going to have to start promoting these type of rivalries, these type of teams, the beauty of the game. They're going to have to go back to these things because the way the rules right now in the NBA, the television product is set up to almost showcase the star of the teams. Just overall, the rules, you can see it. The way guys get calls, it's just everything is set up so the stars can thrive. The league may have to go back into a different style. You know, everything is about in seasons. They're going to have to sort of switch up the way they've been doing things because they don't have a Kobe Bryant or uh, LeBron James to take the mantle next. I understand Zion is nice, but he's not really going to dominate the ball like that and bring a team into the championships every single season. I don't think I, I don't really see that yet. He doesn't really have the aesthetics of it. Luca is going to be someone that's going to be in the mix. But at the end of the day, he's an international player and he's not going to really transcend off the court. See, the NBA right now, they have that formula where they've seen it work with Michael Jordan and they're always trying to imitate that formula. But sometimes you're going to have to tweak the formula and get adjusted. Now, I spoke about it earlier where I talked about on an international level, they're developing the game to grow it out there. And that's something that they got working on the back end. But on the front end, they're going to have to make a slight tweaks because if they keep promoting the individual superstar, particularly after LeBron James leaves, it's going to leave people confused when they see different teams in the finals like this season. And this season, the finals was 10 times better than last year. But these two teams, they were not promoted at all by the league. Everything was LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. And the league is going to have to start to move off of that. Particularly LeBron James the next couple of years, he's not going to really be a factor as far as winning a championship. But the ratings of the last two NBA finals, 
it shouldn't really affect their TV deal that's upcoming. I believe in 2025, the NBA is still going to get a big ass check out of that because there's a lot of technology that's coming into play. The only thing the league needs to figure out is how to manage everyone's habits of consuming the NBA because the pandemic changed a lot of people's consuming habits. People are more prone to consume now off the phone than the television. I mean, I'm pretty sure the percentages were at 50-50 at a point, but now people just mostly consume from their devices. Also, you know, the changing of the guards among players. Once again, LeBron James leaving the NBA or sort of making his exit. Eventually, the league is going to have to move off of that and jump on the new crop of players, promote the new rivals. And also technology is always changing every day as far as, you know, the streaming services that are on like the Roku, the Disney Pluses, the Paramounts. The NBA is going to get a big check out of all that because they're going to package a lot of their programming into these uh, ecosystems, I should say. Amazon is going to be a player, Apple TV. So it's good timing for a new deal to come up because a lot of these streaming services are trying to gain edges over each other. So these last two NBA Finals ratings, it shouldn't really affect the NBA as far as getting a new TV deal. It shouldn't affect it at all because once again, a lot of these streaming services, they're looking for content. And the, the viewing audience is young enough and is within the advertisement sphere in which they want to target that demographic, particularly young people from the ages of, I would say, 18 to... I would say under 45 is mainly where advertisers want to find. And the NBA definitely has that demographic on lock. Is that, who knows, maybe there might be new technology for them to measure and monetize Twitter. If the NBA could do that, they could make a lot of money. It is what it is. Until next time, you guys stay safe in these runner streets. Peace.